Tonight I would like to talk with you about an aspect of the mind that the Buddha called Vedna. It's the Pali word, um, Vedna, V-E-D-A-N-A. And it's often translated in the English texts as feeling or feeling tone. And just to start off, that's not often a translation um, I prefer. And I found it a little bit confusing because feelings often we would in our culture use to describe emotions. But it's become sort of um, how Veda, Vedana is translated and you read it and you talk about it. So just so you know, when we're talking about Vedana, it's the aspect of our heart and our mind that is the uh, painful or pleasant or neutral aspect of our moment-to-moment experience. So if you find a particular moment pleasant, you would say the Vedna of that moment is pleasant. And if you find a particular moment painful, uh, the Vedna would be painful. And if the moment you're in is neutral, the Vedna is neutral. So when we talk about Vedna, using that Pali word, that's what we're describing. The actual, um, if you taste the moment of your mind as it's having any experience, if, if your um, mind is producing pleasure in response to what you're experiencing, that pleasure is a kind of Vedna. Okay? So <clears throat> I'll try to actually stick with the word Vedna as I go through, but um, you'll see it's actually, if I read the texts, um, they talk about pleasant feelings. So that's just a little start on that. Um, <clears throat> this word, Vedna, appears in a lot of discourses, a lot of different discourses, whenever the Buddha is talking about his, um, his core Buddhist uh, psychology. I don't know if he called it Buddhist psychology, but when he was talking about how the mind works, uh, Vedna comes up a lot. It comes up uh, when he was talking about the five aggregates, which we'll talk about later on in the retreat. So of the five things when he's talking about uh, a moment's experience, Vedana is one of them. It's a key part of this very core teaching called dependent origination. Vedana is one of the 12 links that links our misunderstandings with our sufferings. Vedna is where the Buddha asked us to place our attention. Of four places, he asked us to put our mindfulness, to practice mindfulness. Vedna is one of the four. And so if you had to pick four things to pay attention to, and you came up with four of them, uh, that's a pretty small number. So Vedna takes a prominent role in that, in the Satipatthana Sutta, or the Discourse on Mindfulness. And Vedna also comes in when... Um, the Buddha talks about nama rupa. It's another understanding of how the mind works. And Vedna is one of the core components. And lastly, this term Vedna, um, if you are strict keeping track of lists, it's one of the few factors of mind um, that is present in every single mind state. No matter what the mind state, whether it's very sublime, whether it's cloudy, whether it's joyful or enraged, spaced out. It doesn't matter. In every moment of your life, there's been an aspect of Vedana. Vedana does not arise in the mind. It always arises in every moment. There is this tone of pleasure, displeasure, or neutrality. 
And that's in response to the experience, whether it gives off that type of Vedana. The reason we want to bring our attention to it is that even though it's just an aspect of experience, it tends to be where a lot of reactivity uh, um, uh, arises from. Vedana, the type of Vedana you're having, tends to strengthen or weaken your relationship to the experience you're having. It can cause agitation, it can cause delight. Uh, It can be very soothing, it can be very um, uh, storing. So this aspect um, has a big impact about how you're relating to the moment's experience. And so by bringing our attention to Vedana and understanding it, we can begin to untangle the habits and patterns that we've developed over time to be agitated around unpleasant Vedana or to be uh, constantly seeking pleasant Vedana, the pleasure tone. When I was uh, younger, I spent a lot of time in the Canadian uh, wilderness. And that was one of the things I did with my summer. And we would canoe very far out into the woods um, and connect many rivers and lakes together and be gone for weeks at a time. And the people who led the trips up there were the first people I saw that had a different approach to life, that their happiness was not tied to the pleasure we were experiencing, that these people who had grown to love the Canadian wilderness seemed to be happy whether it was raining on us or sunny. They seemed to be happy whether um, we were paddling to headwinds or on calm days. No matter what was occurring, they stayed in this happy state. And having grown up in an upper middle class uh, environment when I was growing up, I never saw adults that could be that happy. Um, (laughs) uh, Adults that I was familiar with were happiest when things were going their way and they, were ha- and they did their best with their financial income to make sure everything around them was sort of chosen to be as pleasant as they liked it. So it was visually pleasant, you know, the food was pleasant, the temperature control was perfect, so the temperature was pleasant, the, the music was playing, and the, that would be pleasant. Um, whatever they could influence, they would influence it to be uh, pleasant. And that sort of gave them a, a background sense of like, this is you know, a good life. Yet if you disturbed any one of those fields, uh, their pleasure <laughs> would get very agitated quite easily. And um, some people had more flexibility than others, but there was a, a tremendous amount of effort put into um, happiness through um, producing a pleasant lifestyle. And it wouldn't necessarily be a gross hedonism, um, but it just, you wanted to make sure that what you were looking at was pleasant, what you were hearing was pleasant, what you were tasting was pleasant, and just trying to have as much pleasure coming in as many doors as possible. And that's how people um, establish their happiness. It turns out that's a very fragile strategy, and maybe you can laugh at that and kind of nod your head and already have an insight on that. But the thing is, on this plane, this human plane, um, you cannot control all the input that's coming to make sure it's only pleasant. And if you don't know how to deal with pleasure when it disappears, how to deal with neutral experiences 
or how to deal with unpleasant experiences, then you're somewhat imprisoned. You're somewhat, um, your happiness and your freedom is very confined to just where those uh, inputs are pleasant. And as I moved around in that world when I was younger, um, there actually were smaller and smaller islands where people found themselves to be happy. It would be, you had to go to a very good restaurant just to break even. You'd have a hard day. (laughs) And if you weren't getting the pleasure, you were having a bad day. So actually the pleasure after a while wasn't even causing that much happiness. It was just maintaining this sort of baseline you know, okayness, but you had to go to a very good restaurant. If the music wasn't quite right, that would be frustrating. So people actually got uh, tight around trying to control, control this. It's one of the things that not everybody gets to do in this American culture, for sure. But as a culture, we're trying our hardest. You know, when you talk in terms, broad terms, we are trying to um, create the most pleasant um, experience and try to get as much pleasure through as many doors as we can. Um, yeah, I don't know if our happiness quotient is higher than other countries. So if that's a question. Before I go on with Vedana, <clears throat> I'd like to talk a little bit about the experience of contentment. And <clears throat> I, I was um, amusing myself a little bit this afternoon in thinking about this. I thought, um, James has a lot more experience on this path than I do, and he wrote a book, Awakening Joy. And if, right now I would write a book called Awakening Contentment <laughs> and call that um, a very good uh, path, really well-walked. If it awakens contentment, you're doing good. <laughs> and joy comes and go for me. Uh, it comes more often than it used to. But contentment is something that actually is uh, more ever-present I'm, I'm harder to separate with an underlying contentment. But if you wrote a book called Awakening Contentment, it might not sell. <laughs> I'm not sure if, uh, if Oprah would, would choose that versus other things, or if it would be that um, compelling. And again, if I told myself 20 years ago, you're going to awaken a lot of contentment. <laughs> oh boy. <laughs> let, work, let me at it. <laughs> um, but this, uh, there is this awakening of contentment. And the strange thing about it is that other ways I might have found happiness, or at least contentment, would have been dependent upon my experiences, or they would have been a running from or avoiding other experiences so I wouldn't lose my contentment. And um, I heard a talk by Ajahn Suchito, a British monk, and he taught me this, in this talk, he was talking about um, uh, minds that are dependent upon their objects for their welfare and minds that are free of objects for their welfare. So dialing into this is interesting because if you're trying to float away from your experiences, just so you're buffered, a little bit numb, then experiences can't ruffle you, but you've actually uh, weakened your relationship to the world temporarily, and eventually the world comes crashing in again. Yet if you open yourself up to experience life, you're going to feel this constant flow of pleasure and pain and neutrality. The path of mindfulness 
invites us to, uh, with increasing degrees, stay connected to the flow of experience no matter what's happening. And as you do that, that means being connected to and intimate with the flow of pleasant experiences, unpleasant experiences, and neutral experiences. And learning how to be intimate with those experiences and see if you can actually maintain a base level sense of contentment that isn't ruffled by the experience you're having. That contentment actually stabilizes and universalizes, becomes universal, and it can arise and it can um, be felt no matter what's happening. And I would say that that's been true. As As I've practiced over the years, that sense of contentment is uh, not yet quite ever present, but harder and harder to shake, harder and harder to, um, to separate myself. I recover it much more quickly. If I'm not feeling this underlying contentment, I usually begin to investigate what's going on because I'm, I'm, I've grown accustomed to a type of happiness, but the happiness is very peaceful. So for me, this word contentment comes up. Can we be content no matter what experience is happening. And I would say that that's maybe one of the qualities of an enlightened mind, is that there's intimacy. The stories of the Buddha that I've read, um, most of the encounters uh, seem very intimate, whether he's talking to uh, a mass murderer, whether he's talking to a king who imprisoned and uh, eventually killed his father who died in the prison, whether he's talking to his uh, beloved disciples. The, um, the rapport feels very intimate, but there's also this baseline contentment. The Buddha is not ruffled by his experiences. So <clears throat> if I tried to establish joy, that would, that would be a beautiful goal, and joy for me comes and goes. But actually feeling into this, um, this sense of con- uh, contentment is something that I personally, it feels more doable. Uh, in my intentions, it feels more possible. And in my experience, it's been more possible. So having a content mind that has room for unpleasant experiences when they arise, that has room for neutral experiences when they arise, and then has room for the pleasant experiences as it arises, to the degree, the intensity, and the duration until things shift as they always do. So freeing our minds and the happiness strategies from the experiences, from this pleasant Vedana, so that our minds uh, at, at its basis is happy no matter what. And then all the better if there's pleasant uh, Vedana but not dependent upon it. And not at all um, fragile or broken or impossible to feel this underlying contentment when there's an unpleasant experience, making room for that, having room for that, so that experience can arise due to conditions and then pass. Physical illness will visit us. Painful experiences will visit us. Experiences of life losing people we love, hardships, um, that will come and go. But it doesn't necessarily have to disturb this underlying uh, contentment. 
That's the wise and mature relationship to Vedna. And it's something that we're going to be growing for the rest of our lives, um, deepening that and broadening that. When I was um, <clears throat> working with this uh, monk, very famous monk, Saida Upandita, he was known for being a sort of warrior monk, um, warrior in his attitude and what he called upon us to experience. And <clears throat> having done two long retreats here in the States, um, I had this mis, uh, misunderstanding that I created that somehow there was going to be better practice if I went to Asia, that we were still trying to figure it out here, but if I went to Burma, they would have ironed everything out. <laughs> so that walking to there would just be, I watched a lot of um, Kung Fu movies when I was young, and they always show these <laughs> monasteries where people are you know, wise masters and walking through and everybody's serene, and there's just, just beauty, beauty, and you know, so much more experienced. Um, so I went to work with him, <clears throat> and um, uh, I went to his monastery while they were still con- um, constructing it. And it meant that sitting in their, in their Dharma hall was right next to the huge dining room that they were building. And they were building it with hand tools, so there was pounding all day, a sound of saw, a sound of the uh, workmen talking. And it was very difficult to sit there practicing and hear these hammer blows, bam, 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 and not regular ones that you could kind of sink into, irregular hammer blows and then the saws and sounds of trucks coming and going. And it wasn't what I had expected. (laughs) And the great thing about working with um, Saira Upandita is that um, you would have an easier time uh, tying a knot in a um, two-by-four then bending his will, <laughs> then changing his stance. Or, um, so I would go to him and I'd say, you know, I'm practicing with all I, I can give, but um, I'm so disturbed by all the sounds um, that I, 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 it's overwhelming. And he said, mm, need more mindfulness. <laughs> okay. Okay. Yeah, I'll try it. <clears throat> and it's true, I could sit there in my, my victimhood and serve um, all the, what a bad choice, what a bad choice, and suffer. <laughs> and get a tiny little bits of like, poor me, like get the pleasure out of the poor me story, somehow that's pleasant. And, or, <clears throat> I was like, this is unpleasant. Nope, this is unpleasant. It's hot, and there's a lot of sounds, and it's just unpleasant. <clears throat> and in meeting it, I began a training I began a training of actually taking life as it came versus how I preferred it. And that actually went very deep into um, earlier training, sort of belief that you could just keep modifying your environment until you were happy. But what if you actually were required to sink into your experience as is and find at least contentment when things are not going as you wish? So that was one. And then later I was inspired enough, and I dealt with, I dealt with the noises in the monastery. Um, and I ordained. <clears throat> I ordained in January, um, and they give you a very thin robe to wear, because usually it's hot there. 
even in the cold days, it's usually hot, but um, around three o'clock in the morning, four o'clock in the morning, it's very cold. So I got dressed up in this and I shaved heads. There was no uh, hair to keep my head warm. And I walked out and I'm from Rhode Island where it gets cold, <laughs> but we have wool hats and we have um, down coats and we, we've responded to the cold with clothing. Um, <laughs> so I've never walked out into such a cold, cold experience wearing so little. Um, and then walking slow, I couldn't even walk brisk to warm up. And I was standing there and this uh, fear kind of crept over me like this, I'm not going to survive this. These other people are hardier than me. Um, this can't be right. And so I did my first alms walk and I came back and I was shivering. I got cold to the bone and again went to the side of Upandita and it's like, maybe this will do it. <laughs> so Saida, um, it was incredibly cold. Uh, it was hard to be present because um, I was shivering and I worried for my health. And he looked at me and need more mindfulness. <laughs> I, was like, I could have seen that coming. I don't know why I tried, but <clears throat> okay. So I met it. I walked out the next day and just surrendered into the cold. And it was more cold than I ever had had to experience up to that point. Covered my whole body. <clears throat> but I saw that actually some of the, the chills and the fatigue that I experienced the day before and why the cold lingered is that there was a lot of time worrying about it. And I didn't worry about it and just surrendered into things being that cold. I came back and I was cold and I warmed up and it didn't have such an impact on me as all the worry and consternation. It wasn't any warmer, it was just as cold, but there was a type of agitation inside because I couldn't meet the cold. I couldn't meet the unpleasant nature of that cold. And on that time I learned at least, you know, 80% of the unpleasantness was just wishing it weren't so. So a lot of the Vedana that was unpleasant began to shift just because I wasn't resisting it, because I could meet it. And then the great thing again about Burma is it kept serving up so many opportunities to experience uh, Vedana that wasn't in the realm where I had been content. <laughs> so another thing that happened right after I ordained, you know, when you go alms walking, you have to go in uh, bare feet. And the first day I walked on this road, there are all these piles of uh, crushed rock. And I was like, oh, interesting, in Burma they pile up crushed rock. I wonder why. And then for the next month what I saw is that every day they had spread out that crushed rock on the, on the ground. And until they put tar over it, we had to walk on it. But first they crushed the rock and then they poured the tar. And it meant for a month I was walking with these feet that had never um, experienced often barefootedness on gravel, but let alone sharp gravel. And this time I, um, I cut out the middleman. <laughs> I didn't I report it to Upandita. And I just <laughs> applied more mindfulness to this unpleasant experience of the sharpness the sharpness of the rock and what it felt like to step on sharp rock. And I found again, if I didn't flinch, resist, tighten, long for something different than I was having, but actually could meet the experience as it was, it was unpleasant. And sometimes it wasn't even unpleasant. Sometimes it was neutral. It was just the experience of edges. I felt a lot of edges and there was a lot of, a lot of sensation, 
But I don't even know if I would call it unpleasant if I didn't insist that it shouldn't be that way. Sometimes the Vedana of the experience itself was neutral. So as we begin to explore Vedana, and as you begin to taste any moment's experience and say, okay, in this moment, I would call this breath neutral. Um, okay, maybe slightly pleasant, but neutral. Okay, in this moment, there's a pain in my back. And I'm calling that unpleasant. It's possible that if you sink into that pain and experience it, as Heather was talking about, it might just be a swirl of sensations. And the, the wishing it weren't there is forcing that experience to create um, unpleasant Vedana. You would experience displeasure just because you wish it weren't there. And by the time you allow it to be there, either the Vedana may shift, it may shift, or it may even evaporate temporarily, and it's just sensations. The same can be explored with pleasant experiences. And so wherever you're finding that there's pleasure, you know, often it's pleasant thoughts that we spend time uh, tracking. You might find pleasure in relationship to the food here, or if there's dessert. Um, the honey you might put in your tea, that sweetness might be pleasure, pleasurable. It's just the quality of the experience you're having. And it's possible if you bring your mindfulness to the experience of honey, it's flavors, but with a lot of uh, presence, it may not even be that pleasant. It's just, oh, these are a, a swirl of experiences. Strange thing is that might sound like the pleasure is disappearing, not a good direction to head, but it's not as pleasant. But the knowing of it can be so clear that there's a type of um, ease in the mind that can really taste honey and not go be going for the pleasure of the honey or the food, but actually just meeting it on its own terms, not because you're seeking pleasure. And you might find there's a more true intimacy with the experience because you're not extracting pleasure out of it, not seeking this pleasant Vedana, not trying to make the Vedana of the experience go towards pleasant. So it's just something, you know, um, something for you to explore as you're exploring Vedana. And it's something, because it's happening in every moment, it's one of the four foundations of mindfulness, so it's one of the four areas to grow our intimacy with. And if you start checking it out, check out what you would call a pleasant experience. One, just see if you can notice the pleasure as part of the experience and see how strong is it, does it last, does it come and go, is it fairly steady? Um, and then <clears throat> see what it's connected to. It's like, okay, this raisin right now is part of this uh, salad or dessert. That's pleasant. Well, what part of it is pleasant? Uh, okay, the um, texture, mm, kind of neutral, pleasant. Oh, it's the sweetness. Yeah, it's right there in that tongue. When that happens, there's this whoosh, pleasure. Oh, wow, it's actually gone faster than I would have guessed. Oh, there it goes. That can happen with chocolate. You know, chocolate, big win for a lot of people. Sorry if it's not for you. But, you know, there's this yearning for it and there's this putting it in your mouth and the pleasure that comes with it. So you get to kind of control that experience, putting something you like in your mouth and tasting it. Um, <clears throat> but if you begin to do this investigation, you can see how quickly the pleasure actually fades. And because the pleasure fades, sometimes that's why we have the next one ready to go because it's the fresh 
thing that causes the next hit. And so, so we don't even wait for the chewing and the swallowing before we get the next one in there because we're actually trying to bump up this experience of pleasant vedana. If you come into the investigation of flavors, sometimes that's so fascinating unto itself that it's just as rewarding as the sort of unconscious reach for pleasure. So the mindfulness itself sometimes can cause a type of enjoyment of, that's not uh, dependent upon the object. Whatever you're exploring, crunching your salad, and this is crunchy, and this is soft, and this is sweet, and that's a little bitter, and this part's sour, and it's all these flavors, and that's all interesting. Even flavors you might not like, but because you're interested in it, that's where the reward comes from, not dependent upon the specifics of what you like and don't like. That mind starts to find all experiences worthwhile and interesting and valid of your intimacy, that um, investigation. And Vedana can come and go. It can be neutral, it can be pleasant, it can be unpleasant. But it doesn't chain your mind to um, only being unhappy when there's unpleasant Vedana. Or only, you know, trying, I can only be happy when there's pleasure through one of my sense doors. And I'll always be unhappy if there's displeasure through one of my sense doors. You can start to untangle that so that you have this underlying contentment, well-being and interest and intimacy with life, no matter what you're experiencing. So starting in the range of experiences where that's likely to happen, and if you go right away to a very strong pain or uh, a thought that's incredibly um, uh, saddening, for example, or to some um, to something that's extremely exciting, that may be hard to untangle the Vedana there. So it might feel like, no, they're linked. I can't do that yet. So starting where it's relatively um, in range, where you can tolerate unpleasant experiences, and then see if you can readjust yourself so that there is an underlying contentment and you can allow that unpleasant experience to be there, to come and go. Explore it. Explore the actual sensation of the sharp rock on your foot or the bitterness of a particular part of the salad or um, the beauty of the sunset sky or the beautiful sound of the birds. Um, Have the experience. Let the Vedana come and go but see if you can um, unlink your sense of contentment from that arising and passing of Vedana. That is tremendously liberating. It's so worth the, um, the investigation, it's so worth the time to uncouple your well-being from the Vedana you're experiencing. Yet so many of us, that's not our experience. By the time we're this old in life, Maybe it's even there uh, at birth, I'm not sure. But <clears throat> you can definitely see it in little babies. As James was saying, they tend to have a kind of a, a baseline joy, curiosity. But as they experience pain, it automatically uh, makes them cry. As they experience pain of hunger or the pain of digestion or definitely anything painful that they're experiencing on their body, it, ag- it agitates. And then as it passes, they go back to this uh, joy. So it's, it's deep within us, but it definitely can be uncoupled. It definitely can be uncoupled. Otherwise, liberation wouldn't be possible. 
the Buddha was not free from pain, but he was free from suffering. So it can be uncoupled. I want to bring up this uh, sutta, a discourse of the Buddha called the simile um, of the arrow or the sutta of the arrow. And um, many people will probably have heard something like this and it's it's become sort of a, sort of just a wise thing that our culture has. The idea is that <clears throat> life is going to serve you up a multiple experiences that you can't control. Some of them will be pleasant, some of them will be unpleasant, uh, many will be neutral. And it's how we respond to them that determines how much suffering we have. So the sutta begins, an untaught person experiences pleasant feelings They experience painful feelings and neutral feelings. A well-taught, noble disciple likewise experiences pleasant, painful, and neutral feelings. So just stopping there and letting that drift down through you, if you hoped this path (laughs) was leading somewhere where unpleasant experiences didn't visit you, neutral experiences didn't visit you, Um, He's saying that's not the case. A well-taught, noble disciple likewise experiences pleasant, painful, and neutral feelings. Feelings, feeling tone, vedna. Now, what is the distinction, the diversity, the difference that exists herein between a well-taught disciple and an untaught person? When an untaught person is touched by a painful bodily feeling, they worry and grieve, lament, beat their breast, weep, and, they, and become distraught. They thus experience two kinds of feelings, two kinds of vedana, a body and mental vedana. So when their body is touched by a painful experience, they experience two types of pain, a pain of that original sense door, pain, and then the mental feeling that comes with it, the lamenting, the grieving, the worrying, being distraught. It is as if a person were pierced by an arrow, and following the first piercing, they are hit by a second arrow. So that person will experience feelings caused by two arrows. They experience two kinds of feelings, two kinds of vedana, a body and a mental feeling. <clears throat> in my experience, it's not just a second arrow. <laughs> I can um, rapidly add arrows, uh, more arrows than you think could fit, <laughs> more arrows than you think could land. Something unpleasant happens and my mind begins to churn. And as it begins to churn, it suffers tremendously, not only the original uh, misfortune or discomfort, but all of the, uh, the ways the mind becomes reactive around that. But just for simplicity, that's called two arrows. One arrow that hits you and the second is all the reactivity. We hit ourselves with the second arrow. No one else is hitting us with that second arrow. That's our relationship to the first. He then goes on to say, having been touched 
by that painful feeling, there arises resistance and resentment. Then, who resists and resents painful feelings, in them an underlying tendency of resistance against painful feelings comes to underlie their mind. So a pattern begins to develop around that. Under the impact of that painful feeling, they then, to, they then begin to pursue uh, sensual happiness. And why do they do so? An untaught person does not know any other escape from painful feelings except the pursuing of sensual happiness. So again, if you have no ability to receive an unpleasant experience, if your contentment is lost, the only way you will know how to regain it is by seeking out something pleasant. Again, that's a mind that is coupled pleasure with happiness and grief with unpleasant experiences. Life will give you challenging experiences. And the only way you know how to recover your sense of well-being is by seeking out pleasure. This creates the underlying tendency to lust for pleasant experiences, to crave them, to seek them, to have a mind preoccupied with pleasant experiences. So because if it was just a one-time thing that only happened to you once in this life, you got an unpleasant experience, wouldn't create a trend. But because life does serve up unpleasant experiences, we develop a habitual response of seeking pleasure. That creates in us a pattern of craving. Not seeing this and being lost in this uh, fear and resentment and agitation around unpleasant experiences, this obsession and pursuit of pleasant experiences, creates an underlying tendency towards ignorance and ignorance to neutral experiences. So neutral experiences don't save you. They're not, they don't rebalance you. So neutral experiences become something that you ignore, that you space out on, and spend that time fantasizing about where the next positive experience is going to come from. It's why we've, many of us have given up on our bodies. It's why many of us depart the breath over and over and over. It's just not fulfilling this urge for pleasure. And so there's a drifting away. There's a weakening of our commitment to the body or to the breath because the breath may be neutral. For many of us, it's neutral, maybe pleasant, maybe slightly unpleasant if you have a breathing problem. So this, <clears throat> this is an interesting thing about this sutta. For a long time, I'd only heard the first one. And it's, there's a lot of wisdom just in that first paragraph, how we react to being hit by the first arrow we hit ourselves with a second by all the agitation. The second paragraph goes into seeing how these patterns get laid down in us. If you wonder why your mind wanders so much and why it's so challenging to have it come back to the breath over and over and over, is you're contending with this deep underlying tendency that's probably been there since we were little, that happiness and well-being comes from pleasant experiences. And there's a lot of fret and worry worry and agitation around the, the, the unpleasant experiences we've had in the past, ones that are arising now and worrying about how strong they're going to get, and then imagining in the future where they're going to be and how do we defend against them. Uh, James was talking about the grooves in the mind that get laid down, and happiness can be a groove that gets laid down, as is contentment. 
but so is this resentment and aversion and fear of unpleasant. So is the seeking, the seeking, seeking, seeking of the pleasant. And the kind of um, the boredom, the uh, disenchantment, the non-engagement with the neutral, because it doesn't solve the first two. They get laid down as patterns. And that's what you are untying as you commit to a fairly neutral experience, especially compared to the culture we come from. You got the breath. You know, you had an iPhone or you had a, <laughs> a computer and you had television or you had you know, restaurants at your disposal or whatever you wanted. But you come here and you have nature. You have a fairly beautiful building, but kind of serene. And you spend a lot of time resting your contentment upon what it feels like to breathe. That is untangling this underlying predilection that your happiness contentment must be linked to pleasure. And what you'll see is that actually there are times when you can be fully content with breathing. And when your mind is fully content with breathing, that's a mind worth knowing. It really is worth knowing what it's like to be in a place of contentment. And the contentment is not born from the pleasure you're experiencing. That would be a fragile contentment. But the contentment that can feel warmth in your hands or the sound of wind in the trees and be thoroughly content for however long as that lasts, that is really worth um, becoming very familiar with that because it becomes a compass heading that challenges your beliefs. I'll only be happy if this experience happens or that experience happens. Wait, actually, I've actually had something that challenges that. I can actually be deeply content with breathing and I'm already breathing. In fact, I've been breathing all my life. So there's always the possibility that my welfare is, can be ever present because I've learned that breathing does that. I've learned that hearing does that. I've learned that to take in color, there's this beautiful painting in the back of the room. It has so many colors on it. And you can sit there and contemplate the images, but you can also just have eyes and enjoy the colors and just take them in. And you know the type of welfare and contentment that's coming from that. My favorite color is blue, and so maybe right away my, my eyes take in the blue and that serve there's pleasant with, pleasure with that. But the, there's much more pleasure coming from the mind that is present with and content with no matter what color is coming through my eyes, no matter what sound is coming through my ears. As much as <clears throat> um, Saida Upandita wasn't the, the teacher, if I had, again, had dialed in who I was looking for, I might not have chosen him. But what he did for me with that kind of um, stern determination for my liberation versus my easy reaching happiness was he broke me free of my dependency upon um, smaller ranges of conditions through where I'd be happy. And by asking me to be mindful when there were hammer blows all day long, to be mindful of the feeling of the crushed rocks, to experience what it was like to be cold, to meet each moment as it was, he was actually rooting much, he was less compromising for my welfare than I was. 
he was much more determined to see me ultimately free and not just temporarily free. And that's what working with this aspect of mind can be. Not trying to control it so that, again, you get the pleasant range or you get the neutral range and always having this revulsion and retraction and agitation when it goes into the unpleasant. But can you uncouple your well-being from the Vedna you're experiencing? And then we go into the uh, second part of this sutta on the arrow. But in the case of the well-taught noble disciple, when they are touched by painful feelings, they do not worry or grieve or lament. They do not beat their breast or weep. They do not become distraught. This is one kind of feeling they experience, a bodily one, but not a mental one. It is as if a man were pierced by an arrow, but was not hit by a second arrow following the first. There is, this person is afflicted just by that one arrow, just by the arising of an unpleasant experience. And then there's a parallel in that because there isn't resistance and resentment in regards to that first arrow, there's no underlying tendency that grows into aversion and fear. So that mind is not constantly preoccupied and wandering into managing the uh, possibility of unpleasant. They just know that it comes and it goes. And maybe there's choices to be made, but there's not a lot of agitation around it. It's not a deep underlying tendency. That doesn't, because there's no retraction against the unpleasant, then there's no um, craving for the pleasure to bring your happiness. So you don't develop the second tendency, the wandering, agitating, seeking, deficient mind, always hoping that there's more pleasure available always wishing there was a little more dessert and it was a little lasted longer and it, or your partner that you long for, if they were slightly different, then you'd get to be happy or whatever it is that's upsetting you, constantly working it, working it, working it so that you get to feel pleasure and therefore well-being. And this is what a well-taught, well-experienced disciple of the Buddha gets to experience not an underlying tendency of resistance and fear and anxiety, not a dissatisfaction and a craving and a seeking and then having to seek further and crave more because nothing's really doing it for you. And without those two tendencies, clouding the mind, agitating the mind, there is the ability to see things as they are. Pleasant experiences arise and pass. And it's wonderful that they're here, but it's also okay that they go. Pleasant experience, unpleasant experiences arise if you can quickly renegotiate to accept them so you don't get reactive. Then they arise, they dance around, and they pass. They have to pass. They don't last forever. It may seem like it, You can get a lot of waves. You can experience physical pain or emotional pain. Many people might find that a grieving process lasts incredibly long when you've lost a loved one or when some 
uh, relationship or some part of your life falls apart and you are relying upon it and then a grieving process starts. I had that happen with um, maybe one of the first person I ever deeply fell in love with and when the relationship didn't work out, I was a pretty well-practiced Dharma practitioner but I had never found that much hope that like, oh my God, there's so much ease and pleasure here. This is great. What? (laughs) It's not happening. Temple, let go and move on. And it took me months to go through that grieving process because the pleasure was so, it wasn't just, it was just, um, I don't know, it went so deep within this uh, sense of well-being through contact with this person that I never experienced that. And so the attachment that kind of came through me and held on. And one part of me, this was after being a monk, so one part of me had Upandita, like, be more mindful, let go. Come on, mind, we're both suffering here, and I know a way out. No! (laughs) No, I will never love again. No, no. It's like, really, you want to do this? You did this all yesterday and the day before. You want to do this again today? No, God, please. It's like, and I'm trapped with you. <laughs> like, I still have to go to my job. I still have to drive around. And I have this guy inside who's just dying because this has happened. And <clears throat> so uh, that process, you know, it's not like we can flick a switch. It's not like we can, like, we can hear this and then, therefore, I'm done. It actually is a, is a process of letting there be pleasure and knowing the pleasure comes and goes. People come and go. Pleasant experiences, resources, um, love in our life. Where it is, the objects come and go, and we can't control that. But if a part of you is settled into contentment, and it's not the type of contentment that then doesn't care, it's the contentment born of intimacy that has developed to where it can be with unpleasant experiences. It can be with unpleasant experiences and let them come and get stronger. Oh my God, and even stronger. Oh my God, and then gone. Oh my God, it's back again. Letting all that happen without having to go on the ride with it. And now I'm happy, now I'm sad. Now I'm happy, now I'm sad. Actually, I'm good. I'm good, and this is a really interesting ride because the Vedana is still getting up and down, but I'm not having to go along. My basic sense of well-being is not having to be tethered to this ride. And the way that we do that is with steady, steady effort to meet the experiences that come to us one by one, readjust ourselves to find that sense of baseline well-being and contentment with breathing or walking or eating, just establish that, and then experiences will happen out of our control. And here on retreat, you stand a chance of actually changing these patterns. Somebody next to you develops a cold and they start breathing heavy, and that is a little irritating. Somebody through the thin wall up in your dorm starts snoring at night, and it's hard to have that experience. There's a pain that opens up in the middle of your back that you've never felt before. Maybe as your heart's beginning to open and that's shifting the energies and the emotions or you come in contact with um, a beautiful, dear uh, longing that you've had. These experiences will come. 
the Vedana might be part of why it's hard to meet, why there is clinging agitation and why there's resistance. And so calming down and letting the Vedana come and go. That's even in the Satipatthana Sutta. It's the second foundation of mindfulness. The first is the body, and you've been working a lot with the body and breathing, body scans, opening up to the body field, feeling your body when you're walking. All that is this beautiful first foundation. The second is opening up to this feeling tone of pleasure and pleasure, displeasure and neutrality of experience, knowing it, becoming intimate with it, and then watching it come and go, watching it rise and fall. And then seeing if it rises, does it cause, if the pleasure rises, for example, does it cause clinging? Or can I really be open? It's coming, oh look there, it's going, it's coming again. Or does it have to cause a reverberation inside of grasping and seeking and renegotiating? Can you just let it come and go? And that's the practice. See it arising. See pleasure arising in a particular moment. And then see it fading and let it fade and then watch something else arise in its place and then let that fade because it's already going to do that. It's already going to rise and pass. You're just coming to terms with it. And as we'll explore later, you know, throughout this retreat, working with the reactivity that comes up around this aspect, this Vedana aspect, is a large part of the path. So to, to start, um, we're just getting to know it here through this conversation tonight. It'll be added into our practice. And just <clears throat> deepen your intimacy. If you've done it before, there's a deeper relationship possible, even yet, to feeling the Vedana of each moment and letting it be what it is, pleasant when it's pleasant, unpleasant when it's unpleasant, neutral when it's neutral, and letting it shift as just one more dynamic play of your life. So... That's enough for tonight. Let's sit for a moment. Let the words settle. And as the words settle, you might come into just a moment and say, this moment right here, the flow of these experiences out of the range of the very pleasant to the very unpleasant. Right now, my experience is like this. See if you can right here and now begin tapping into this aspect of heart and mind. Begin to know it, see if it's stable, and see if and when it changes. (laughs) 